Welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Ian Vasquez. I direct the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. There's a well-known literature on the curse of natural resources, which finds that countries, especially poor countries, that are rich in natural resources have a difficult time developing because of the effects of natural resources, which are perverse, on the country's economics and its politics. During the past several years of high uh, oil prices, we have seen oil-producing countries around the world that have been implementing policies that many of us believe are not consistent with the types of policies that lead to self-sustaining growth and open societies, and Russia does not appear to be an exception uh, to that trend. Indeed, especially over the past uh, year, we have seen worrying signs of uh, Russia's increasingly uh, aggressive approach in its efforts to try to uh, centralize control over energy resources and in the process undermine the kinds of institutions that are necessary for proper checks and balances, uh, transparency, and government accountability. Thus, uh, we've seen limitations on the press, on international NGOs, on uh, uh, particular journalists, indeed mysterious assassinations of investigative journalists, and the possible confiscation now of tens of billions of dollars worth of Western uh, oil projects in Russia. In some, a general environment of, uh, uh, of centralized control over Russia's energy and other key resources. This is important not only uh, because of its impact on Russia's domestic uh, policies and institutions, but also on uh, its impact on foreign policy. And unlike other uh, oil-producing countries, what happens in Russia and Russia's foreign policy, of course, has a tremendous impact on world affairs and geopolitics. That's why it's a pleasure for me to have two uh, experts uh, join us today who have an intimate knowledge of the way that uh, the new Russian state is uh, developing today as a result of Russian energy policy and developments in the world uh, energy markets. Uh, the first speaker will be Robert Amsterdam, uh, who is a partner at uh, Amsterdam and Peroff, and he has uh, he has handled numerous uh, cases around the world of, in international business disputes and human rights uh, cases in Russia, in Hungary, in Nigeria, in Venezuela. In uh, 2004, uh, you will all recall the Yukos case in which uh, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, uh, was, the head of Yukos, was arrested on charges of uh, tax uh, uh, non-compliance and so on. In 2003, uh, Mr. Amsterdam was uh, hired as his uh, defense attorney, and uh, so he has been in a position to s observe how uh, these developments in Russia have been taking place over the past several years. He's an expert on Russian affairs and has been published widely in places like the Financial Times, the Independent, Le Monde, and the International Herald Tribune. Uh, please help me welcome Robert Amsterdam. Well, thank you very much. Uh, firstly, it's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to speak uh, in the company of Andrei Nikolaevich, a truly courageous man who, within the Kremlin, 
managed to put forth in a sole voice of opposition, unfortunately, uh, a, a very credible series of positions about what would be right for Russia and what would be wrong for Russia. And I salute him and I salute his courage in doing it from the inside and in finding a voice, a voice that so many in the West have failed to find, placing opportunism before principle time and time again. Today we are going to be talking about Russia, which is a great country and a great power, attempting to reassert itself and find its place in the world. And in so doing, it has been making some choices that are truly a problem in terms of its own future growth and development, because what Russia has done is begun a war on the market. It is at war on the market, and I'm very privileged to be at Cato to talk about that, because we all understand the intimate connection between the marketplace of ideas and the marketplace of goods. We all understand that those who close the marketplace of ideas, those who destroy the newspapers, those who attack journalists, those who destroy federalism, those who water down electoral results, those who change electoral laws, they don't have a better idea. They only have one thing to sell, and that is generally fear. In the case of Russia, however, it is an extraordinarily complex issue because in respect to Russia, there is an incredibly powerful series of dynamics going on, some of which have been positive, some of which have been negative, and it is that shift in balance over the last number of years, particularly since the arrest of Khodorkovsky, that has made this dialectic so much more interesting. The issue of sovereign democracy, which is a theory that has been developed by Mr. Surkov, who is, for those of you who have studied the Kremlin, attempting to fashion himself uh, on the image of yesterday's Mikhail Suslov as an ideologist for what is going on. What he is attempting to say and do through sovereign democracy is give the West a rationale for its failure to attack Russia's departure from European values. Because basically, sovereign democracy says Russia isn't ready for the separation of powers. Russia needs the vertical of power. Russia isn't ready for the marketplace of ideas or the energy marketplace. Russia can only meet the West on its own terms. And as a result of that, he attempts to justify the asymmetry of Russian-Western negotiation. And let us all understand the asymmetry. Russia demands access to Western markets, and Russia forecloses Western investors. Russia demands an equal seat at the table, and it imprisons Khodorkovsky, and it strands BP, and it forces Sakhalin to sustain a shutdown because it instrumentalizes environmental law and tax law to fit its own bidding. And those victims of the Kremlin stay silent. This is a necessary part to understand of sovereign democracy, the silence of the West. 
because it is that silence that can be heard in Caracas as well as it can be heard in Moscow. The world took a lesson from Yukos. It watched the largest taxpayer in Russia be grotesquely seized and expropriated for pennies on the dollar. It watched Western banks participating and it watched a German chancellor with no claim on moral principle support the Kremlin, support the Kremlin and support the horrific auction, the phony auction of Ugansk Neftegas that led Andrei Ilyanov to say Russia is no longer a free country. It is this idea that it is the state that needs to mobilize these energy assets that is so fundamentally wrong. It is so fundamentally wrong for a Russian leader within 15 years of the end of the Soviet Union to believe that it is the state that needs to bring Russia into the 21st century. It is as wrong for that leader as it was for Mr. Schroeder, a German chancellor, to believe that what was important for Russia was stability and to make the Faustian bargain that an autocrat can give stability. This is why the fundamental underpinnings of what's going on in Russia need to be understood by the West. The attack on Khodorkovsky and Yukos was an attack on property rights from which the West has not yet recovered. That attack on property rights has left us reeling. It has left BP reeling in Kovicta. It has left Shell reeling in Sakhalin. And it has left Exxon as well, all under the gun, because of the failure to bring in any forms of the protections promised. The new subsoil legislation continues to be delayed. Improvements to the tax legislation have not yet occurred. What has happened is that by instrumentalizing the law and putting energy companies in the hands of rival bureaucratic factions in the Kremlin, profit is suppressed, efficiency is suppressed, production is suppressed, foreign relations with key powers such as Japan are jeopardized. The anarchy of the Kremlin in deciding after years of discussions about partnering on Stockman that they can't partner on Stockman, it was not a sign of strength, as so many sycophants said when they made that decision. It was a sign of weakness, as the IAEA suggests they don't know what their own reserves are. And you can't plan if you don't know your reserves. And you can't know your reserves if your government and your bureaucracy is turning more corrupt each day. Corruption is not a spectator sport. If you're in it, you're playing it. There are no spectators. And our Western banks are in the forefront of the corruption in Russia. They have made a deal with the devil, and they need to be brought to task. It is important that those who collaborate are brought to task. We need to understand that the attack on the rule of law going on in Russia leaves casualties. Men are imprisoned. Journalists are killed. These are not crimes that are occurring in a vacuum. 
believe you me, it is this poisoned psychology and this poisoned environment that cannot be overlooked by the new leader of Japan any more than it can be overlooked by this administration, no matter how inconvenient it may be. The Russian foreign policy implications of the attack on the rule of law can be summed up in the concepts of preemption and disaggregation. Preemption, because if you follow Gazprom's attack in Europe, you need to understand that Gazprom in this area is behaving very rationally. And it is unfair, it is unfair of me or anyone else to attack Gazprom as a business in attempting to maximize its customers, its, its leverage with its customers. That's in many ways what businesses are about. And it has done it, and it has done it at an incredible, with an incredible lever. What you have to criticize, however, is the relationship at the top level and throughout between Gazprom and the Kremlin. If we believe in corporate governance, then there is no place in Gazprom or Rosneft or any of the other companies at the Kremlin for the day jobs of Russian leaders to be managing Russian energy companies. Because then they are not national champions, they're just nationals. They are just corporations that are pursuing the foreign policy objectives of the Kremlin. And shame on the London Stock Exchange for allowing the flotation of Rosneft when in its own IPO documentation it stated that it might not be always established that every activity of Rosneft was going to be for profit maximization. Well, if a company's activities are not for profit maximization and they are admitting to political motives, these need to be understood, and they can't be understood without proper oversight and proper corporate governance. In Armenia, in Lithuania, in Germany, in the United Kingdom, it is Gazprom that is structuring itself in a way to preemptively move against market makers in the area of gas. In Armenia, it has done brilliantly in stopping Iran, in making massive payments to Armenian uh, energy companies to exert its influence and stop Iran from having the ability to transit gas into Europe. In Lithuania, I'm sure we're all aware of the fact that the Lithuanians and the Poles have had an absolutely impossible time trying to deal with the refinery called Mejeku Nafta, that that refinery, since Lithuania decided to sell it to the Poles, has undergone the breakdown of the pipeline feeding it, and it's undergone a mysterious fire. This, this refinery constitutes 10% of the GDP of Lithuania. Poland has undergone a systemic attack through the North European gas pipeline. A pipeline that, by the way, as we celebrate Russia and the U.S. reaching towards WTO agreement, a pipeline that is completely inconsistent 
were the foundational principles of the WTO because the North European gas pipeline makes no economic sense. It is a political pipeline. It is three times as expensive as the Yamal option would have been, and it is done to exert pressure on the near abroad. It is done to exert pressure to ensure that the calculus at the Kremlin on who gets gas and who doesn't get gas can be finely tuned. It is important, it is necessary, that the dialogue that goes on with Russia from the West is not one is not one that is misbalanced. There have been areas, there have been changes in Russia that have been positive as well. The point of the matter is, however, that it is in this exporting of fear, it is in the inability to manage to make the transition Russia is making in the context of a market, of a marketplace of ideas and a marketplace in, in energy and other fundamental sectors of the economy that we need to stand up and demand equity at the negotiating table. I come from a country in Canada that is also known as an energy superpower and that when, when Canada decided it wanted to establish protection for its future, it didn't expropriate companies, it didn't take the best and the brightest and throw them in the gulag. It negotiated the NAFTA with its biggest customer and decided to share the wealth for the benefit of its customers and itself. There is a lesson for Russia in the Canadian experience. And it's very important, and I want everyone to understand, that Russia doesn't need the West to inculcate democratic values. The nation of Speransky and Vita needs no Western ideologist to tell them about the rule of law and democracy. They have it. It is innate within them that freedom exists. Anna Politkovskaya and many others in Russia that today are fighting against these fairly draconian changes that have occurred in the last few years are not some foreign virus. They are native-born. And there is no necessity for this analysis of sovereign democracy to continue in such a defensive way. Russia does deserve to be in the WTO. But what it has to adopt is the rule of law. It must sign the energy charter. It must engage in the rule of law, not as an ego-building process for the leadership, but as a system-building process for the businesses in Russia that are growing more and more corrupt each day. The World Bank has stated that Russia today is 151st in the world in terms of rule of law and the voice of the populace. It is on a par with Swaziland. These issues need to be addressed next week when the EU and Russia meet to negotiate, or to possibly negotiate, depending on Poland, to possibly negotiate a further partnership agreement. We cannot 
exclude the rule of law. Because let me tell you something that comes from this organization and others, which is you can never separate human rights and the rule of law from energy or any other commodity. Human rights and the transparency that is reflected and developed by a free press and proper corporate governance and the division of institutions in a country. This transparency is necessary for accountability to exist. And for that accountability to exist, the the president of France should be ashamed of himself as should the foreign minister of Germany, in trying to once again, following sovereign democracy, kowtow to those who want to buy the West's impunity with energy. And there's something else that needs to be understood that is a keynote, a a fundamental part of sovereign democracy, which is the belief that energy, the existence of energy within Russia, somehow gives Russia power. That's actually not the case. Never has it been proven that having these assets in the ground gives anyone power. Those assets only give Russia power if those assets can be mobilized and sold. And they can't be mobilized and sold if foreigners will not invest the tens, if not dozens of billions that it will take to actually have Gazprom even meet the requirements it presently has signed on to all over the world. And when we talk about foreign policy, remember, it is Gazprom in Venezuela, it is Gazprom in Iran, it is Gazprom in Israel. What happened at the UN with Mr. Chavez would not have happened had Mr. Chavez not been in Moscow and signed a $3 billion arms deal with the leader of Russia. What is happening with Iran would not be happening if the Kremlin had not decided that Iran as a pariah state is far better in terms of energy competition than Iran as a functioning part of the international community. I've I've made these comments about Russia, but I don't want to end before I speak about the man who is in prison in the gulag because he took on these forces because he decided that Russia needed to be in the marketplace of ideas and the marketplace of energy. And he intentionally went back to Russia when he knew where Russia was going to face down those who felt differently and to face down those who in this mask of sovereign democracy are seizing assets, expropriating and developing Russia in a way that it was not intended post-Soviet and growing the bureaucracy massively. We'll end in speaking of Khodorkovsky with the words of Pushkin. Deep in the Siberian mine, keep your patience proud. The bitter toil shall not be lost, the rebel thought unbowed. The heavy hanging chains will fall, the walls will crumble at a word. The freedom greet you in the light and brothers give you back sword. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, uh, Robert. It's now my pleasure to introduce 
uh, Andrei Ilarionov, which who is uh, one of the most uh, articulate and forceful advocates of the open society in Russia. He is also, uh, I'm pleased to announce, the newest uh, senior fellow here at Cato's new Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. As many of you know, Andre has been involved in promoting economic and other reforms in Russia since the very, very early times after the collapse of the Soviet Union, and most recently he was the economic advisor to President Putin from the year 2000 through 2005 when he resigned in protest of the government's uh, policies. Andre, of course, is knowledgeable about the types of policies that are affecting uh, the domestic sphere in Russia as well as uh, neighboring countries uh, around uh, Russia. We were uh, just a few weeks ago in Tbilisi, Georgia, together for a Cato Institute conference where we could see firsthand uh, the kinds of effects that uh, Russia's policy is having there, and I'm sure he'll be happy to, to provide some comments on that as well. Please help me welcome Andrei Ilarinov. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Jan. Thank you, Robert, for um, uh, your comments and uh, uh, words. Uh, the topic that we are discussing uh, today is energy policy in Russia, uh, to my mind, is very important, not only per se, and it is very important because Russia is one of the largest energy producers, energy exporters in the world, and that is why what is going on in this country and what um, the country's uh, authorities are going to pursue in terms of energy policy certainly has effect on the world affairs in this area and in other areas as well. But this uh, policy is also very important in, from the point of view uh, of better understanding uh, what is the type of thinking, a type of uh, vision is uh, some kind of uh, is uh, widespread among those people who are pursuing those policies, not only in the area of energy but in some other areas. And I would start my uh, comments with a maybe personal note, uh, since it is already has been said that uh, okay, that uh, I have perhaps some kind of Im intimate knowledge of what was going on, and perhaps some of people who came here uh, came with expectation that some uh, state secrets will be revealed. Uh, right, okay, some I do receive from time to time such questions and some kind of expectations uh, when I am speaking. So, I ha unfortunately, I have to disappoint those people who came with that purpose, so that is why if you have some other more important uh, business, I think it's the right time to do it. Okay, so just because uh, what I am going to discuss is going to be um, uh, analysis of uh, energy policy in Russia from uh, purely analytical perspective as outsider, not as insider. And I think even that information would be quite enough for uh, better understanding what is going on. Um, talking about energy policy, we certainly want to understand what does it mean. And perhaps one of the uh, appropriate 
uh, ways to look into the uh, content of energy policy is uh, or would be to look uh, through uh, particular episodes of this energy policy that would reveal the some kind of the re- this, the the real content of that policy much better than any particular documents written and published and some kind of popularized uh, uh, officially. <laughs> Uh, and those episodes that I'm going to talk about actually are the m- maybe the most important uh, milestones in forming and formulating energy policy in Russia over the last maybe seven years. I would mention some of them. Uh, the beginning of forming of energy policy, I mean real energy policy, not that policies that have been uh, put in the same kind of volume of 300 pages by Minister of Energy, uh, and actually not many, many people did read, and even less uh, people are followed. Uh, just the main, uh, the, the starting point would be the debate about electricity reform uh, uh, in the electricity sector in Russia that started in year 2000. Uh, the Second milestone uh, that I would say would be certainly the UCAS affair uh, that uh, began at least for uh, some kind of uh, general public from arrest of uh, two top uh, officials uh, from UCAS company. Uh, the next in uh, July uh, year 2003, there was a first arrest. In October year 2003, the second arrest. And after that, uh, several other people from this company have been arrested, and some of them still uh, in jails or in the camps. Uh, the next uh, milestone would be the uh, seizure of this uh, main asset of the company, Yukos, Yugans Nefty Gas, in December year 2004 and uh, forced transfer of this company to company Rosneft. Uh, the other little point is it just August year 2005 when uh, actually the forced sale of Sibneft, as we can understand, has happened to Gazprom. Um, uh, one of the, uh, the next point would be the point when uh, that uh, attracted a lot of international attention uh, in late December year 2005 early year 2006, it, it was a gas war against Ukraine. Uh, it was little, little uh, less attention paid to the gas, oil, energy, electricity war against uh, Georgia. They happened a few uh, weeks after that uh, to Moldova, but nevertheless, they were also uh, very important events. And maybe the last uh, uh, substantial event that uh, worth to mention here is uh, number of events of year 2006 that can be uh, called together. They are, would, I would say, Rosneft IPR in Atlantic Stock Exchange, uh, G8 Summit in St. Petersburg in July year 2006. Uh, uh, it could be called some kind of the international approval of the policies uh, formed uh, that have been formed in Russia over those years. So let me uh, some kind of provide some little comments on each uh, of these m- most important episodes. If we come back uh, to year 2000, year 2001, when the uh, debates uh, on uh, uh, kind of and direction of electricity reform were pretty hot, and by some observers uh, have been considered as a battle of personalities, if we look with more details uh, and uh, with more accuracy into these uh, debates, we would find that it was a debate about principles. 
about the basic principles uh, according to which uh, economy, market economy, uh, could and should operate. Because among all many issues that have been under discussion that time, the most important question was, who can own the electricity grid? And there were two parties and two sides and two camps in this debate. One part that I have an honor to belong to was saying that electricity grid is no much different from any other productive asset in the, in the economy and can be owned by private companies, by uh, private people, by uh, private entities. The other camp that has been uh, represented by the management of the Rao Yes monopoly in Russia uh, claimed very strongly that uh, electricity grid should and must belong only to the state. And in the particular circumstances of Russia, as well as perhaps for many other countries, it means that it belongs to them management. So as we all know, in this debate, uh, after long uh, uh, discussions and debates, uh, the government and the uh, high officials decided to take the side of those who advocated the state uh, monopoly over electricity grid. And just to make sure that nobody uh, would be able to not only own uh, uh, private electricity lines or electricity grid, uh, several important elements have been included into the legislature, uh, Russian legislature concerning electricity, that even those who would, by any mistake, would build their own private line, they would be forced to uh, some kind of to pass the whole control and all this uh, management of this line to row yes. So just that would be no mistake. The second uh, episode uh, that so that just the main idea of that that it was a, a victory of the so-called state uh, ideology and state uh, property uh, versus <laughs> private uh, property in year 2001. So uh, the second uh, episode that uh, certainly attracted a lot of attention was the Yukos affair. And uh, since uh, year 2003 until today, there were abound different theories and hypotheses why it has happened. And one of the uh, journalists uh, who that time was in uh, Moscow uh, has produced a list of at least 15 theories explaining that event. Certainly, we don't have time for all these 15 series, and we should not do it. Uh, but what is important that the official claims against Yukos and against Khodorkovsky happen to be completely fake. Actually, it has been demonstrated during the court uh, that uh, was in Moscow that time. And anybody who actually followed those events, uh, anybody who would like to, uh, who re read uh, all these scripts or who would uh, have. Uh, intentions and desire to come to the court uh, would, could see it with uh, his or her own eyes that it was a, a complete fake. And actually nobody very much, I mean, on the part of authorities, nobody very much wanted to even to hide this fact that it is a, some kind of show trial. It's not the real trial. Um, so uh, none of those uh, claims that actually have been uh, confirmed in and could be confirmed in any uh, relatively independent uh, uh, court hearings. So what was really behind it? And there was some claim that, okay, it could be compared, and some Russian uh, observers uh, even uh, said it so, that, okay, um, 
right. We could not uh, some kind of uh, put uh, Mr. Kadarkovsky into jail uh, on those real uh, issues uh, because it's too hard, but because he is criminal, so that we we would need do it uh, just through through such a way. But because he is criminal, okay. Why he is criminal? What criminal he has done with his colleagues and so on? Uh, several issues have been put forward. One that has been claimed uh, widely that of tax evasion. If you look on real tax payment by Yukos company and other energy companies, you would find that Yukos was one of the best tax payers in the country, and certainly much uh, better uh, taxpayers compared to some state-owned companies, including Rosneft, Gazprom, and Rao, yes, much better. Um, if uh, we look into the other uh, hypothesis that uh, also have been put forward, uh, it is a, uh, some kind of claimed refusal of Yukos company to contribute to so-called PPP, so-called public-private partnership. It means the cases when the authorities are uh, some kind of requesting from uh, private companies to contribute to particular funds for some particular uh, business that uh, government thinks it is very important, but certainly it would go uh, beyond the government budget, beyond any transparent procedures. The, for, for example, Constantine Palace in uh, St. Petersburg, the place of G8 summit in July year 2006, it is some kind of the uh, very visible um, some kind of monument of this PPP because it is owned by the Russian state, by, to be accurate, uh, by presidential administration. And uh, there was no ruble, no kopek, and no dollar has been spent on construction and reconstruction and rebuilding of this building from the state budget. It has been built on private money, but it's owned by the state. So it is an example of PPP. So the question is uh, just uh, the claimed refusal to participate in PPP. No. Yukos, along with all other big companies, were first and paid their amount that have been some kind of uh, established for this company for all these projects. No much difference. So another issue. Uh, it was called so-called barbaric exploration of Russian natural resources with the methods and technologies uh, that have been brought uh, by uh, those bloody Texans uh, into Russia, and that is why uh, it is absolutely intolerable uh, destruction of uh, Russian nature. No. Russian company Rosneft, the so-called state-owned company, is doing exactly the same method, uh, methodology right now on a scale much larger than Yukos was doing that time, and nobody would say any word against this. Another one pipeline construction, or at least uh, proposal to build uh, pipelines, one to Murmansk uh, coast uh, to supply oil to the United States, and then another one to the in eastern direction to China and Japan. It has been considered as a, some kind of attempt of uh, some kind of state reason. Okay, after Mr. Khodorkovsky has been put in jail in the camp, now Russian government and some other companies are eagerly participating in constructions of uh, both pipelines. So the very fact of supply oil to the United States, now not only Yukos, not so much Yukos, because uh, Yukos does not do it, but some other companies are doing this. Again, not the fact. Um, sale of part of the company or potential sale of the uh, of, uh, company to the foreign investors, for example, to Exxon 
Okay, just uh, several months ago, there was the IPO of Rosneft, where the sale of this company went to foreign investors as well. So nobody arguing against. Um, financing political parties, including opposition political parties. Oh, come on. Uh, all other for, uh, big, large, uh, large uh, Russian companies are financing political parties, and not only United Russia, according to the orders from the uh, authorities, but also opposition parties, including uh, opposition party Yabloka and including SPS, opposition parties that is financed to a very high extent uh, by these large companies. Once again, it's not the, the, the fact. Um, Illegally, or what is, con- uh, what is uh, considered to be illegally or morally unaccepted uh, acquiring of those assets that were uh, under control of Yukos and Kadarkovsky through so-called loan for shares auctions. Yes, this is very some kind of questionable uh, uh, auctions, and it was to discuss them separately. But nevertheless, at least a dozen other companies have been uh, through that procedure, and none of none of the owners of these companies have been uh, has been prosecuted. Uh, my last point in this list would be uh, between uh, what is the difference between former Prime Minister Kretien and former Chancellor of Germany Schröder. So it looks like both are very respectable uh, former leaders of uh, G7 countries, but two of them are treated very differently. One of them, as we all know, has received very lucrative position in the uh, Gazprom control company for construction pipeline in Europe, and the other one, Prime Minister Kretien, after he her first time said a one, and actually not very loudly, word, in defense of Yukos, uh, he has never had a chance to see any of Russian officials anymore. So and so, what is the difference between these two people? And what is the difference uh, between Yukos and all other Russian companies? The difference can be found in three areas. First one is a purely economic one, or close to economic. The Yukos happened to be uh, the one of the most transparent, if not the most transparent company in the years from year 2000 to year 2003. It, a lot has been done uh, by uh, Yukos uh, uh, management to make uh, all possible information available uh, for outsiders. Uh, uh, a lot of efforts have been done uh, to implement and to strengthen corporate governorship uh, in the country, corporate governance uh, in, in the company, and Yukos uh, became, actually deserved the right to be called one of the most transparent Russian companies. Uh, Kadarkovsky, as well with uh, his other colleagues in the management, uh, made public their personal earnings and personal ownership in the company that produced a real shock in the country. Because it has shown that all others actually should follow this path should follow this way that has been demonstrated by this company. Perhaps it is not necessary to mention that not everybody was happy with such a perspective. Uh, the second uh, uh, difference uh, of Yukos uh, uh, from other companies and Khodorkovsky from other uh, uh, owners of those companies is Yukos uh, uh, participating in creating of charity. And what kind of charity? Uh, they have created Open Russia NGO 
that actually uh, taught uh, thousands and tens of thousands of people in Russia what does it mean democracy, what does it mean freedom, what does it mean civil rights, how to operate in politically free country, and how to create it. So there was a lot of money that uh, UCAS, uh, uh earned has been used for strengthening civil society in Russia, for independent mass media, and so on. None of other Russians, Russian companies did anything similar to what has been done by UCAS. And by this fact, UCAS became one of the most important enemies of those people who did, who did not want to see Russia as a politically free country. And the next point, maybe the last point, the most important point, point that the very fact that Khodorkovsky himself refused to be a part of the either corporation, I mean the big corporation, those who were in power in Russia and are in power in Russia, and actually he has openly challenged uh, political monopoly and political monopolization in the country, stating very clearly that he wanted to participate in political activity in the country, and he is actively participating in political process, not according to the rules set by uh, Kremlin administration, but by those rules uh, which he saw as necessary element of politically free country. All these three elements that I have mentioned make this company and those people clearly different and distinct from other companies and other people. None of those from other companies did anything similar to what has been done by Kadarkovsky and other people. And as you can see, none of others has been arrested, put in jail, in a camp, and so on. So the main conclusion from that episode is uh, some kind of those who are claiming, uh, who are challenging political uh, monopoly in the country has a very high chance uh, to go to uh, some of the remote Siberian cities. Uh, the third episode would be Rosneft uh, 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 seizure of the Ugans nefty gas assets. And it has been very well known uh, in, in the world. What is important that uh, many people uh, still think that Rosneft is a state-owned company. On one hand, it is, looks like true, because it is very well, uh, almost everywhere it is announced as a state-owned company. But uh, just in the day for, uh, to the IPO uh, last July, it has been made very clear by uh, special information from the Russian government that Rosneft is a private company. And that is why what has been done, it uh, was done not as a just act of nationalization of uh, assets, private assets. It was a distribution, it was a transfer uh, of these assets of private property from one owner to some other owners. And it is very uh, important to remember that it was not some kind of nationalization for so-called public good, however it is uh, designed, whether that is right or not. Uh, another very important uh, uh, episode uh, connected also with Rosneft is Rosneft IPO. It is very important to remember that uh, uh, the resources, the cash received from the IPO from this so-called state-owned company did not go to state coffers. No ruble 
no dollar, no pound of sterlings. No. All this money then to the company itself, to the management, and to the real owners, the so-called private owners of this uh, company. So that is why it is uh, not only uh, confiscation of assets, it is appropriation of assets by some people who are today enjoying political power in the country. Uh, the next episode is a gas war against Ukraine. It has been said a lot about uh, this uh, episode, and many people claim that it was a dispute about prices. No. Some people claim that it was a dispute about pipelines. Could be, but not so much important. The most important what has been announced in the wake of this uh, dispute and this war, but what actually has been achieved. Before January 1st, year 2006, the Russian company Gazprom sent gas to Ukraine and through Ukraine with a price approximately 47 uh, US dollars per thousand cubic meters. After the January 1st, the gas still flows through this pipeline system through Ukraine into Ukraine at price that is claimed to be some kind of 95 US dollars per thousand cubic meters. And some people could think, okay, yes, it's exactly about prices, this but about prices. But they perhaps missing a very important point, that before January 1st, year 2006, this gas has been sent by Gazprom, and Gazprom collected money from exporting this gas. From January 1st, year 2006, this money is collected not by Russian company Gazprom, whatever it is, good or bad, state or private owned. It, this money is collected by company Rosukrenerga, registered in Swiss canton, uh, 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 and these money are not going to the Russian budget. And the very fact that this battle, this war and this dispute is finished in a such way shows what was real target of this dispute. Who would get this money? So you can easily imagine that the Russian budget uh, lost from these operations uh, amount of money measured by several billions US dollars. My last episode here would be the uh, G8 summit in St. Petersburg and this IPO of NIST uh, that happened in London Stock Exchange. What is it? If you think a little bit more about these actions, it is nothing than legalization of all those assets that have been acquired, seized, nationalized, quasi-nationalized before that. And because it became absolutely clear for anybody in Russia, and especially for the current authorities, that any other government that would come to Russia sooner or later would certainly come back to this those issue and to reconsider what has happened there. So the best way to protect their property, and in this case I would say their private property, they would need to have protection of much higher level than any Russian court can actually supply. Because what does it mean, Russian court? They know much better than anybody else because they are doing with the Russian legal system what they are doing, they are destructing it. So that is why they went for so-called uh, jurisdiction shopping or legal uh, property rights protection shopping, and they found this 
protection in Britain, in some other countries, and political protection through G8. So we can conclude what are the most important elements of this energy policy over the last six to seven years. They are monopolization of resources, monopolization of assets, monopolization of transport infrastructure, confiscation of those assets, appropriation by private people, and after that, legalization with the best possible legal protections that can be produced by this world. And I certainly, it would be rather hard not to agree with uh, uh, Mr. Amsterdam that the crucial role in this uh, process certainly played not only by those people in Russia, but also by many forces in business, in legal system, and in political system in the West. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks very much, Andre. We both speakers have given us a lot to, to talk about and to discuss. We now have time for questions. If you have a question, please raise your hand and uh, wait for the microphone and identify yourself and your affiliation. There's a question up front here. Could you speak it up, please? We can't hear you. Could you put the mic up to your mouth, please? Uh, okay. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I'm very pleased to be here and to meet you and to listen to uh, all you have said, Mr. Well, Mr. Ilarionov. So, uh, from my heart, from what I heard, I am from the Bulgarian embassy. Uh, Valva is my name. Uh, um, okay, we saw that the Russian energy policy is uh, the same for the last 10 years. And that the Russian state is the same for the last 10 years. And uh, what I would like to ask you is uh, this word here, new Russian state. How do you see this new Russian state? The word new, what do you mean by new? Okay. Because everything we, we just talk is known. Okay, thanks. Shall I we answer here? From here, from here, okay. So well, just uh, from here. You want to say something? Um, okay. Shall I start from here? All right. Okay. Uh, first of all, I have to say that um, it would be incorrect to say that for the last 10 years, Russian energy policy is the same. Certainly not. Uh, and uh, the process of... F shaping of the current uh, energy policy uh, can be detected from year 2000, as I tried to, uh, to, to mention in uh, the preliminary comments. Um, and the more or less some kind of uh, clear shape this policy uh, has taken probably from year 2004, year 2005. And uh, we can see to very distinctively different periods in uh, not only in Russian energy policy, but even in Russian economic and especially in Ru uh, Russian economic performance and in Russian economic performance related to energy. I uh, especially some kind of put uh, some numbers here for, for example, for oil output. Oil output during the uh, period of uh, uh, the so-called Russian economic miracle driven by Russian 
Russian and foreign private oil companies in this sector from 1998-99 to year 2004 was pretty remarkable. Average gross rate of oil uh, output by all these private companies was 11.5% annually. For state companies, 3.9. But even because that time state companies did uh, some kind of participate, not not such a larger scale, so the average growth for oil output was almost 10%, 9.6% annually. Over the last two years, oil output is growing at level 1.8%. That's a very clear differences between these two periods. What was that time when the private companies were free to operate and what has happened with uh, Russian oil output and energy output uh, when uh, this new policy has been implemented. It's even more remarkable to compare the output of gas in this sector. As you know, Gazprom is a uh, state monopoly and it is uh, the largest producer of gas, but not uh, only producer of gas. So for last, uh, I see here, six years, average uh, growth rate for Gazprom was 0.8% annually. For several Russian gas companies and some oil companies, private, uh, both gas companies and private uh, oil companies that were engaged in gas exploration and uh, gas production, the growth rate was 10.4. After changes in this uh, policy, now what we have? the growth rate uh, for gas output in the last two years went down to 3%. So that is why, once again, it is very clear to different periods in performance in almost each sector of Russian economy, uh, depending what kind of policy has been implemented. The same very low growth for electricity, some kind of really very few percent, and Pretty remarkable growth of coal output because coal output uh, uh, are not monopolized uh, and is driven by private oil companies. The growth rates there also 6.5 percent uh, annually. Um, so this policy is relatively new; just it's for last two three years. Uh, but this policy has already produced very clear damage, first of all, to the Russian economy and to the world economy. We'll take a question here. Uh, up, up front here. Emilio Adolfo Rivero, New Cuba Coalition. <clears throat> Some think that it's difficult for a cold-blooded Latin to communicate with emotional Anglo-Saxons. Nevertheless, one can try. <clears throat> I have two questions. I have to give some background so that the questions make sense. One question for Mr. Armstrong, the other one for Mr. Marianov. <clears throat> Mr. Armstrong, I fully agree what you said about Russians not being in need of our advices or suggestions in their fight for freedom. I recently read a book published by the Pen Club, Political Prisoners in Russia, covering a period of 70, 80 years. 
you see the Russian soldier. Because we think of oppression, but we never talk about those who fought oppression. <clears throat> there you see the Russian soul even better than in Tatiana's letter, even better than in Baryshnikov, in Nureyev, in uh, Bratia Karamazov, the Grand Inquisitor. We know that. But what you're doing, Mr. Armstrong, how do you place that? against the background that it is for the interest of the Russians and the Americans, the American government, the Russian uh, government, to go together because of the international situation. So against that background of vital interest of those two countries of being together, how do you place what you're asking? And the question for you, Mr. Marionov, <clears throat> is this. If one travels extensively, you know that it's a very well-known fa fact that the mafia in the United States, the Russian mafia, it's very powerful. And they, the, they have enormous investments here in the States, and I have traveled and I have seen that in other countries. Now, regarding what you have been saying of the gas industry, where do you see, Mr. Marianov, where do you see collusion and where do you see collision between the political layers and the criminal layers in Russian society? Well, I, I clearly got the easier question. Uh, the, the, issue, the issue in respect to the U.S. and Russia is that, uh, as far as I'm concerned, um, on the big picture items geopolitically between the U.S. and Russia, there is nothing actually bigger than rule of law, the WTO, the entire transnational system of international laws and treaties, and for Russia and the U.S. and Europe to obtain a common grammar in respect to those. That's the most important thing, because Russia cannot mobilize its resources without it. Russia cannot continue its disaggregation policy with it. And once Russia signs the energy cha charter and Russia has to agree to transit gas, we're going to be in an entirely different energy world where something called competition may actually evolve in some of these markets. And that is going to help in terms of liberating, li liberating peoples. And it is going to help in terms of, in fact, putting Russia back on a better road in terms of democratic freedoms. I think what we're seeing right now has been many American politicians attempting to close their eyes to the reality of Russia because they think, in respect to Iran or North Korea, that Russia somehow geopolitically is on their side. And as I said when I spoke, they're wrong. The sovereign, the, the concepts that are coming out of Moscow, and there's a recent paper that's just come out called The Likely Scenario of Action of the United States Towards Russia. There's a tremendous well of hostility towards the U.S. among the Siloviki who have become uh, very powerful in Russia. And there's a false game in terms of many of these American politicians who believe somehow that by the president and Mr. Putin getting along 
all of a sudden the world is going to be light. It's not, it's not how it's going to happen. We've got to deal with fundamentals. We can't deal with isolated issues. And we have to have a negotiating table with Russia where the hard issues for and about Russia are addressed. They can't be obfuscated. And that's why I'm saying the way to do that is to begin today to focus on those Western banks that are the complicit players in this geopolitical game. Because as far as I'm concerned, these banks have become political actors, and they are unsupervised, and their goals are short-term profit maximization at the expense of rule of law. And that doesn't work in a market economy. You can't have what I call constitutional dumping. Now I'll turn it over to the harder question. Oh, thank you. Um, uh, first of all, I, I, I'm a little bit puzzled by uh, the fact that you put me into the basket of all these uh, uh, cold-hearted or some kind of emotional Anglo-Saxons. Okay, but it was very interesting. Okay. Uh, second uh, issue is concerning political prisoners. Uh, political prisoners in Russia did, in, Soviet, in the former Soviet Union, did exist until 1986, uh, the most of them, uh, when uh, by decision of Gorbachev, uh, many of them, including Academ Academician Sakharov, have been released. Some of them, as far as I know, have been released later during the, uh, 19, uh, 1987. So from 1987 for uh, the uh, following approximately 13 or 14 years, there was no political prisoners in Russia. And that is why it's up to you to decide who can be called the first political prisoners in this modern Russia uh, in year 2003 with uh, um, top officials of Yukos or earlier or later, it would be up to you. But the very fact that at least for some particular time, for close to maybe two decades, uh, uh, Russia did not have political prisoners. And it was also one of the facts that perhaps Russia, the, the level of political freedom in, in the country was not very high. I would uh, agree with that. But there was certainly it was not a non-free country that is right now. And your question concerning uh, mafia, uh, Russian and American one, I have to confess uh, that perhaps I don't know, don't know many of the representatives of this respectable organization uh, or organizations, uh, neither here in the United States nor in Russia. At least nobody has been identified him or herself as a representative of this organization in my communication. Um, uh, but certainly we can have some kind of uh, suspicion who can be... Uh, a member of those organizations. Certainly we cannot prove it uh, with some kind of scientific knowledge and scientific arguments. Nevertheless, looking from uh, my perspective as an outsider on, uh, uh, on uh, those organizations, I came to the conclusion that among two types of mafias, whether it is in the United States, in Italy, in Russia, or in some other countries, two types, private and state ones, I would not say private is better. I would say state is worse. <laughs> uh, since I would not say that private mafia is good, and I would not consider and would not just not, th not think in such a way, but uh, when there is a private mafia operates, at least some people on the state part, on the society's uh, part, are fighting this private mafia, and it is considered to be either illegal and certainly morally unacceptable for majority of population. When 
State mafia is an operation. State mafia, first of all, is destroying the basic elements and pillars of the civilized society. It's an independent judiciary, rule of law, competitive political system, independent mass media, and so on. And finally, state mafia is destroying the basis of any country, its public morale, because it is considered to be example to follow. And that is why when private mafia operates, so that is why there are some forces outside mafia and in society that would be ready, would say that it is morally completely unacceptable. Why it is in a society from top down. So it is incomparably harder to argue and to fight and even to explain people that the behavior that is offered from the state and from the government is the right behavior. And thousands and millions of people, including young people, getting very, very strong lessons how to behave, and it is not a right lesson. So that is why the consequences for destruction of the country, in, not only in the short term for economic performance that we can measure all these numbers, and not even in medium term, but in longer term, is incomparably larger, and is, in many sense, is just immeasurable, because it's destroying the very basic pillars of modern society. Take a question from Anders Oslund. Anders Oslund, uh, Peterson Institute for International Economics. You have both given a very clear uh, picture of where Russia is going, but uh, I would like to ask uh, Andre to speculate a bit uh, about the nearest uh, future, uh, what uh, will happen to Russia, where it will go uh, further. In particular, President Putin is saying that he will leave in March uh, 2008. Should we take that seriously or not? How do you see uh, Russia's immediate uh, future? And in particular, what factors, domestic and external, do you think are so important that they might impact uh, upon this course that Russia now seems to be upon? Thank you. Uh, Thank you, Anders, for this question. If you allow me, I would be politically incorrect uh, in this audience and at least an attempt to answer your question. Uh, From my point of view, uh, the the very core of your question as well as many other questions, uh, so whether the president of Russia would leave or not, uh, who will be successor, what are the prospects of one successor versus the other one, and so on. From my point of view, they are irrelevant. No, they, uh, they could be relevant from one particular position, from the position of the former Sovietology, new-born Kremlinology, Siloviki-logy, or whatever, just whatever new science or so-called, so-called science will be devoted to understanding who is standing where on the Lenin's mausoleum during the November 7th parade, or who and how is sitting uh, in the Kremlin administration on the Security, Security Council meeting and so on. It is very interesting and very stimulating for some uh, people uh, exercises. And so, okay, uh, I invite everybody who would join these uh, exercises do it. For me, it is not interesting. It is not relevant because uh, it will be so-called sciences for autocratic some people would say totalitarian whatever but it would be certainly it would be science for analyzing and 
I would say, understanding non-free society and non-free country. It is important, it is interesting, but it is not for me. I think what is really important uh, that uh, whoever will be there, it will be a member of the very narrow circle who would be picked up. And after that, all state machinery, ideology, mass media, and terror will be used to so-called, to produce so-called election. And it would be not much difference. It will be much smarter than in the former Soviet Union, no doubt, as we can see. But it will be the same results. So in the former Soviet Union, we had the election every four years. Who would call this country free and democratic? And the, the, the issue who would be the next one would be solved and would be decided in the very narrow circles of members of Politburo. It will never be solved and will never be decided by millions of people who are so-called invited to poll stations. It will be the same story. Regardless how many people would come, regardless what will be shown on the first channel, on the second channel, and so on. So that is why as long as Russia is politically non-free country, so for me it is irrelevant who will be there. It will be not so important. And the very fact that somebody will be appointed and offered as appointee is absolutely unacceptable, first of all, for Russian citizens and for anyone in the West or outside Russia uh, as some kind of politically acceptable outcome of this. It is just unacceptable. It is unacceptable that somebody should be picked up, whoever he or she will be, how good she will be. So how smart, how liberal credentials that person can offer to anyone. It doesn't matter. The most important issue is procedure. And here's procedure is completely destroyed. There is no procedure. There is no democratic and politically free procedure. So that is why the very first point would be when and how to establish procedure for politically free elections. And after that, who will be there it would be the second of importance. The procedure is much more important than the particular personalities who will be selected through this absolutely unacceptable procedure. We have time for one or two more questions. We'll take uh, one in the back, right there. You. Yes. Hello, my name is Daniel Sikolov. I'm from the Center for International and Security Studies at, at Maryland and Iskran. For Moscow, what does this new Russia, uh, autocratic and strong Russia, mean for U.S. national U.S. national interests in the world? This is what I, th I think should sh should be made clear. To whom you pose your question? To 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 you, if if it is if it, um. it's possible to. I have to apologize. I don't have any relations to U.S. national interests, and maybe I'm not the best person. Even some people claim that I'm even already Anglo-Saxon uh, to <laughs> to talk uh, and to speak on behalf of U.S. national interests. So it's maybe better to ask somebody else. Sure. Um, there is a, as I've said, in terms of U.S. national interests. Firstly, and I say this with respect. Russia has an economy similar to the size of Holland. And we need to understand that this 
projection of massive power is to some extent uh, a bit of uh, an emperor with too many clothes. I mean, there is, there is a tremendous amount of bluff and bluster right now about Russian energy. Russian energy can only achieve this global throw weight if it's mobilized. And it can be only mobilized with foreign investment. So it is, a, it is an incredibly interesting situation that the very people in Moscow who are beating their chests about sovereign democracy are the same people who are disentitling future generations of Russians from real energy security themselves. As these numbers uh, that were thrown out earlier demonstrate, Russia going down in terms of its production and supply is not in the U.S. national interest. What is in the U.S. national interest is uh, this situation of Russia beginning to go back into a really uh, credible dialogue and the United States recognizing that the EU position, which has been completely disaggregated and broken apart by the separate deal that has been done with Germany, which has put Germany and Russia offside from the rest of Europe, needs to be addressed. The biggest issue the world faces is the vacuum of U.S. power. And I, I, I think that may sound crazy to people who are talking about this unilateral Bush doctrine. But when I see the United States today, I see a country that has lost its voice in forum after forum of the world because of Iraq. It has lost its voice in Latin America. This country has let down Latin America and it has let down Central Europe. I feel for Poland. I feel for Mexico. I feel for so many countries that over the last number of years have had their interests in a strong America just dissolved by the lack of American resolve to continue to engage with the world in respect to the war on terror. And we need to understand the false use of that term, war, war on terror. The war on terror has been a war of terror that autocrats have used against their own people. We have done a difficult job, and in terms of translating it to the rest of the world, we've done a terrible job, because the, many of the principles that have been generated by the United States to avert another terrible disaster have been misconstrued and misunderstood, and the U.S. is just not at the table. The fact that the EU is so disaggregated and so broken and that a major ally of the United States like Poland stands alone is a terrible testament to this vacuum of power. Uh, if I may respectfully add uh, a little bit uh, to the uh, comments that have been made by uh, Mr. Amsterdam, uh, what has happened in Russia certainly does have impact, uh, no doubt negative impact, on what is going on in the whole world not only in the United States, but just in the whole world. Um, and the size and the, the extent of this negative impact certainly depends on the size of the country in which such uh, developments occur. Uh, if it, it would be true, uh, even would be true when a Russian economy would be of size of Holland, as it was just after the August 98 financial crash. 
Today, uh, Russian economy is much larger. It is maybe three times larger than Holland due to uh, economic growth and due to much higher energy prices that put uh, dollar-measured Russian GDP to the level higher than one trillion U.S. dollars and maybe uh, one trillion one hundred billion U.S. dollars next year. So it is now tenth largest economy in the world by purchasing power parities. And that is why this uh, impact of much larger economy, much larger country on the rest of the world is much more pronounced. But here's another very important point that has been made earlier by uh, Mr. Amsterdam. That is not only negative impact by country per se, but also by a uh, new type of contacts and relations uh, between Russian authorities and authorities in some other countries. And some of them have been mentioned, like Iran, uh, Algeria, uh, Venezuela, Syria, uh, Palestinian Hamas, and so on. And this very fact uh, of some kind of early stage of unification or maybe coordination of policies in some particular areas creates absolutely new reality, not only and not so much for the U.S. national interest, but for the world. Because the policies that advocated and are pursued by those countries and in those countries now having much larger share of international economy and international politics. I'm afraid we have just uh, one more minute up front for the last couple of questions that uh, I promised uh, the speakers, the uh, attendees. We'll take two questions in a, in a row right here, starting with Nick Eberstadt, and then they will... Thank you. Nick Eberstadt, American Enterprise Institute. <clears throat> Both speakers have mentioned the adverse implications of the new state policy towards energy for the industry's long-term economic outlook. Uh, the negative impact, I think, of, uh, on exploration, on development, and, of course, also on the pipeline and transport infrastructure. I'd like to ask both of our speakers, or either of them if they care to respond, uh, do you anticipate that these uh, so-called internal contradictions in the new policy would force a change in the Russian approach to energy industry under its own weight, or can the new approach continue on more or less indefinitely? We'll take the uh, next question right away. Uh, Stuart Goldman from the Congressional Research Service. My question is related to Nick's uh, and is directed primarily to Andre. Uh, the conventional wisdom, as we've, as we've seen the evolution of, of Putin's policy from the early years, when it seemed to be fairly market-friendly to what we've seen in the last few years, part of the conventional wisdom in interpreting it here is to, to describe uh, Putin and the circle around him increasingly as as a Gosvodovnik, as statists. Uh, but yet, uh, Andre, the the uh, the picture that you've given of what was driving these uh, very unfortunate developments uh, sounds very much like it's driven uh, by personal interest rather than state interest. And uh, the the figures that you've given us about the decline in oil and gas production, which of course are well known. Uh, and we see Russia becoming less and less hospitable to large-scale foreign direct investment. At the same time, the highly competent econo economists, both uh, in the West and in Russia, tell us that huge foreign direct investment is absolutely necessary in order to maintain, much less increase, 
Russian energy production in the future. My question is, in your view, does this not completely give the lie to the interpretation of, of the, the Putin-Kremlin policy of the last few years as a statist policy driven by enhancing the power and efficacy of the state as such? Robert, do you want to begin? Can this policy continue? I'll start by just saying yes. I, I agree with you, and I think this has been the image. It's been living in Europe as I do. They constantly want to use the term nationalization. They constantly want to use uh, – they want to play on this, this belief of Russia as victim, and they want to make the analogy to nationalization. But as Andre mentioned in terms of Rosneft, and it's also true in terms of the actual subsidiary of uh, Gazprom that bought Sibneft, it's very clear that private interests are at stake, which makes more odious the use of the tax charges and the environmental charges – as, as simple tools of theft. In terms of this uh, tension that you discussed, the tension exists. In fact, uh, Gazprom is going to be in a truly tenuous situation as early as this winter. Uh, I can't, and I think it's very difficult to know when the switch will turn in terms of the, even the possibility of attracting more investment. My own view uh, would be that until the election of 2008, the thieving twins, Gazprom and Rosneft, are going to continue to be going after Western investment in Russia at an accelerated rate until they get some clarification of who in the end is going to be uh, in the Kremlin. Um, I find this, uh, your question is really excellent. Uh, the question whether this policy and this is vision and this approach is either market-friendly, as it seems to be at the very beginning, or it is a status that looks like it is today. The answer will be, just attention, either neither or both. What does it mean? It means it depends on whom they would communicate with if they would communicate with outsiders and international area, so it would be certainly market-friendly. And the underscoring the some kind of the behaving according to the market principles. If they would communicate and would talk to people within the country, it would be the status approach. How it is possible to explain the concept that, uh, that they're developing from my point of view, it can be called nazism. It's a Russian word, which is coming from the word our own, our ownism. That means that what actually is in our own property should be protected with all elements of the market economy, liberal democracy, and so on, because it is our own. But we can use whatever possible resources of the state, status resources, confiscation, seizure, whatever, against others, because they are not our own, but they are others. So it's a, it's a philosophy and policy of us versus them. And the critical, uh, uh, the, the most important criteria, who belongs whom, who belongs which particular, who are our own, who are us, and who are them. So it is up to them to decide. 
If somebody would like to just join the club, it is not their choice. It's a choice of them to decide whom they would copt and would put into their circle and who decide who will be there. So that is why it is maybe not so easier for outsiders, but even for insiders in the, in the country, in Russia, to understand this approach. This approach is very clear. It is, we are in the market, and the best way uh, to some kind of to increase our value and our property is to use the state instruments and state bodies with not only market, but also non-market methods to increase their value. But when this moment approaches that it is necessary to some protect it from either internal or possible external questions, so they would use all possible elements of the so-called market economy. That's all the time we have. Thank you for coming and thank the speakers. <laughs>